Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 181 for January 29th, 2009. Crypto Recap. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by GoToMeeting. Stop wasting time and money on meeting in person. Hold your meetings online. You can do more and travel less. For a free trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we talk about... It's the geekily informative show <laughs> where we talk about all, all things security-oriented with Mr. Steve Gibson, who is the king geek here. Hi, Steve. Hello, Leo. Great to be with you, as always. I have... Where did I put it? My Steve Gibson cap now with a little what? bill on it. Yeah, in France, I got... You know how you wear that little cap? Oh, yeah, yeah. My little chapeau. Your chapeau. Yeah. I got one in... For, my wife gave me one for Christmas, so now I have a Steve Gibson hat to wear. Ah, Cool. Today we're going to need our thinking caps because uh, we're going to we're going to recap. Get it? <laughs> Ouch! Yeah, that was pretty uh, bad. Yeah, what I want to do is I want to do a couple seriously propeller spinning episodes. Uh, one to discuss something we've never discussed before: a cryptographic component known as a keyed message authentication code. Um, and that's the last piece we need for understanding all of the SSL protocol, which is going to be the episode that follows that one. But before we plow in, I thought, you know, let's just sort of step back for a minute and do a cryptographic review, sort of a, a, a review of, of where we've come, what we understand, just sort of an overview. Everyone can maybe this one, they'll only have to read the transcript once to 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 get it all. But I just sort of thought before we go any further, let's sort of just lay down a little bit of very clear foundation about where we've been. Sounds like a great idea. In fact, uh, I was saying before we started, when you mentioned that, I said, this is how I learn. I learn. And I guess the best term is recursively, where you go back again and again, and it gets a little deeper and deeper and deeper each time. I, I, I can't absorb it all until I kind of learn some stuff, apply it, and then realize where my gaps are. Right. That's how you learned computers, I guess, and programming, too. And all of that stuff. Oh, I think so. In fact, one of the one, one of the best best methods now we're seeing when I look at, at curriculum programming curriculum, they talk about like starting early, getting students to like write simple programs, get them you know on the machine and doing things. They'll sort of inherently sort of explore and and mess around and change the code and see what happens. But you know, instead of like loading people down with a whole bunch of theory first where you're just sitting around saying, wait a minute, you know, how do I use this? You know, you know, what do I do with this? You, 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 you get them right in and sort of hook them and then, you know, add successive layers of, of successive refinement. Yeah. Well, we're going to do that. So we've very we've, fractal when we fractal, there maybe is yeah. a better word. Fra- fractal learning. Well, fractors are recursive too, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So maybe um, uh, for those of you who have heard our other crypto discussions, maybe you, you kind of gave you a beginning, but uh, we're, we're going to recap, refresh, revive, review. review. 
Yeah. Before we do that, can I mention Go to Meaning? Do you mind? Oh, please. Well, I love these guys. Go to Meaning uh, is from Citrix. I just got uh, Ed Iacobucci. One of the, I think he started Citrix many years ago. Just uh, linked me up on LinkUp. And it was great to see the name again. Ed uh, is a brilliant guy. He worked at IBM. He was on the OS2 team, but went to... And this is a weird bit of history, but he went to Microsoft and helped them code NT. In fact, we used to say... That OS2 was really written by Microsoft because a lot of Microsoft engineers were at Boca writing OS2 when all the IBM engineers were in Redmond writing Windows NT. The upshot of that was these guys really understood the guts of uh, of Windows uh, NT and wrote the basic fundamental uh, remote desktop stuff. In fact, Microsoft still licenses their remote desktop stuff from Citrix. It's that good. No one knows better how to get two machines to talk to each other over the internet. They've got two great products that have come out of this. We've talked about go to my PC. There's also go to meeting. Now this is kind of for the business side. If you're if one of those people has to have conference calls or meetings, heaven forfend, you're one of those people who has to travel across the country for an hour meeting. I've done it. Oh, across town for a 10-minute meeting. The waste of gas, the waste of time, the just the grinding boredom of it all. Go to meeting eliminates it. It saves you money, it saves you time, and best of all, makes you more effective. Here's what happens. You can go there right now. In fact, by the time I'm done talking about it, you'll have it. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. Literally, it just takes a minute or two to install it. Now, you can go to Outlook and send an invitation to a client or a colleague, or you can even be, go and be on the phone with them. It's got built-in VoIP and, and free voice conferencing too, by the way. So you're on the phone with your client, and you say, hey, I'd like to show you uh, these drawings, or the, this is my idea, or let's collaborate on this document, or if it's a, if it's somebody you're trying to sell something to, I've got a presentation I'd like to show you. Believe me, this makes it more engaging, makes it more fun. You don't have the guy on the other end playing Tetris while you're trying to explain something, because he's watching, he's engaged. It's really fantastic. I want you to try it for 30 days free. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now for a free trial. Give it a shot. Show your boss, show your clients. They're going to love it. Show your colleagues. Go to meeting.com slash security now. These are nice guys. They know their stuff. And they've made a product that is absolutely the best. In fact, PC World said it's the best uh, uh, remote access meeting software, online meeting software. Just really the best. Go to meeting.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of uh, the Security Now show. All right. Time, Mr. G, to... uh, First of all, I guess before we do a talk about our recap on uh, security uh, encryption, encryption, maybe is there any updates from last week? Any? Uh, oh, yes. Well, um, don't know how long or often you've had your Macs turned on, but there was a very big for for me on the on the uh, on the Mac platform. I think it was seventy six megs. It's a a major update, version seven point six to QuickTime, oh, which yes. fixed. Seven seven different critical um, remote execution vulnerabilities. Oh, you're kidding. And one with the MPEG two uh, player. So it's it's very important. It's across all it, both platforms, both Mac and Windows versions of QuickTime. Uh, really do need to get updated. The the exploit is just just visiting a site. Most most. Um, experiences will start playing QuickTime without any user interaction. That is, QuickTime is there. 
you know, and, and it's ready to go when you go to a site that's got some quick time content, it immediately plays. So, so, you know, there's, there's some concern that this is going to get exploited at, at, at this point. There isn't anything known that is exploiting these, but Apple had been informed as early as like middle of last year. So these are a little while in coming. So I would say it's absolutely worth taking the time. When I turned my Mac on, it it announced that there was the update, which I was expecting it to, but it was so big I, and it was like 10 minutes before we started recording that I, thought, ah, I can, you know, I'll wait till afterwards. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, I downloaded it on all know. my machines. Yeah. And uh, I didn't realize it was... I. I knew it was a security update. I didn't realize there were seven remote exploits. That's yeah. that's a, that's a, that's incredible. It's it's a biggie. Um, also, there was a note that I saw that I thought was interesting. Um, th- just to sort of warn our listeners, um, there are illegal copies of Apple's iWork 09 um, appearing on file sharing websites. About uh, it's estimated about twenty thousand users have downloaded this. The bad news is. It contains a Trojan Whoopsies. Uh, known as iServices.a, which runs with root access. When you run it and it installs itself with root access, it downloads, a, it, it contacts remote servers, downloads a bunch of additional software to deeply infect your Mac with a botnet. You know, this is uh, taking advantage, I think, of the... Uh ARD agent, the Apple Remote Desktop agent bug that's been around for some time. And the key on these things is still on the Apple, you still got to get, you got to trick the user into installing it. Yes, exactly. But, and, and again, uh, I just wanted to warn people that there are, you know, this Apple's iWork yeah. 09. Don't this download like, it oh, from BitTorrent, you nitwits. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, I've never mentioned it. I've referred to pirated copies of Spinrite a few times. We have been we have been sent Trojans, which were called Spinrite. And people, you know, anonymously said, hey, I just want to let you know your Spinrite trashed my machine. You know, here's a copy of it. And it wasn't Spinrite at all. So it's like, oh, you really do need to be careful when you run things that you get from, you know, questionable sources. This is a very uh, common way for uh, spyware folks and and um, and virus authors to get you to install their stuff because yeah. you're installing something from somebody you don't know. This is one the, of the five rules I tell people on the radio show: do not accept files from strangers. And BitTorrent is accepting a file from a stranger. Yeah, well, exactly. And in fact, re- remember that last week when I ran Microsoft's um, the MSRT tool and it found seven viruses sitting in my 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 email attachments folder i had never run them they were there no there was no one you know loving them to start them and let them go but you know and so nothing had gotten into my machine but some email that i received you know brought those brought those in wow so that absolutely happens you know we were we've remarked in the past on this show about you know how can it be that people don't have um, Windows update running, for example, with regard to this this Conficker worm, the you know also known as the Downadup, which has infected at this point tens of millions of machines, it's still causing problems. And remember that this is is using something that was patched in October. Well, I, I ran across an interesting discussion about this because five hospitals in Sheffield, um, in the UK had more than 800 
of their 7,000 PCs infected by this worm. Okay. Why did they have auto update disabled? It turns out they had administratively disabled auto update on purpose. Okay. Are you sitting down? Because. Because in the middle of surgery, a bunch of their PCs in the operating theater rebooted and shut down life critical equipment, which was running on Windows. It's like, oh, God. The same thing on the TriCaster. The same thing has happened to me many times. Our stream has been shut down. I finally had to turn it off on my machines. This is a stupidity that Microsoft... Now, I think they fixed this. This automatically installing and rebooting. Haven't they? Well, it's still an option. I mean, I'll know... I noticed that on, on machines that I don't use often, like I've got a little PC set up with a with a stamp printer and label printer and a little scale for like mailing things. And, and when I turn it on and I say only every couple of weeks, it'll say, Oh, I've got updates and and I've got mindset not to auto reboot, but it is a user choosable setting, you know, like, like, like just notify me or download and notify me, but do not install. And then finally is like, do the whole thing. And so what I what happens is when I'm shutting it down, it'll give me the option to to install updates and shut down, which is really nice because I can then say that's what I want, and I walk away and leave it, and it does its thing and then turns itself off. I have a download. I, this is what I ended up doing: download and notify on all of them, right? But never install. In fact, I no. remember it was doing it with the uh, as we recorded shows. It would say, "Okay, in ten minutes, I'm gonna restart," and I'd have to every ten minutes. I'd look, click, <laughs> click, click. So, yeah, that, I think that's a little annoying, Microsoft. But, 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 so the default is to do that. I think, as I remember, but it, but, but the notify, download and notify is good right. because it says we've got new um, updates. Let us know when you want to install them, and it will even do it when you shut down and automatically, right? If you just because it puts that little shield up on the shutdown button. Yes, and and exactly. Well, it does in Vista. It doesn't. Under XP, but you do no, get it does in XP. The shield, yeah. Oh, okay, maybe that's something new in the Service Pack Three, but because uh, we have one XP machine, and I, I saw oh, that, I saw that good. shield, yeah, good, yeah. Um, anyway, so for for anyone going into surgery, you make it <laughs> ask a good if they're idea. using Windows. <laughs> Just ask, yes, ask your hospital. Or, that should you scare have any, you. You have any Windows machines on the internet? <laughs> that should scare you. It'll be in the operating room with me because I'd like you please to disconnect them from the internet well, so they don't update themselves and reboot in the middle of surgery. That's just nuts. That's a good point. Why are yeah. they on the internet? Exactly. They're on the internet in the operating theater. That's a very good point. That's a dumb thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they were they were, you know, on the network receiving updates. It's like, oh, goodness. And I wonder if, my, if they might have, you know, the downed up worm when they're participating in a botnet and maybe have time to keep your oxygen levels regulated. <laughs> no reason for a computer in surgery to be on the Internet. Yeah, I don't want it surfing the net. Maybe the doc wanted like to look up Wikipedia on how oh, to do this. Streaming his classical music while he, <laughs> yeah, you, you, know, you know what, op- opens up. That's your what chest. it was. He's watching Twit Live. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Stop watching. Go back to work. Okay, we have some errata as well. Um, a a poster in the GRC news groups using the handle Ferrix has been working with the YubiKey at a relatively low level for some time. 
and responded to last week's discussion of the limited size of YubiKey's static password, which I think was in 192 or 176, I think it was 170-something bits. He said it is, although he doesn't understand why the the little customizing personalization app that that the that Yubico produces generates these shorter static passwords, he is absolutely sure that it is possible for the YubiKey to generate a full 64-character, 256-bit static password. So it is as long wow. as the as any passphrase you could ever give to, for example, um, a WPA router, it ends up hashing it down into two into actually into 128 bit uh, key for AES. So this is twice that long. So it's, you know, absolutely um, as secure as you could ask for. And maybe Yubico will fix their little gizmo. He's got a script, um, which he's been uh, posting links in our news groups. We have a GRC um, Security Now news group, uh, which sort of follows the show uh, where we have some dialogue about what goes on. And and so that's where he's been participating. Excellent. Um, Somebody else made a note that our recommendation, uh, our audible recommendation, the habits of successful people was not available to him in Australia. Oh, I have to say this every time. I should be much more clear about this. Everything we talk about is U.S. only. The audible ads are paid for by the U.S. agency. And the uh, any deals or offers we do uh, may be available in other countries, but we do not guarantee. I don't want to say U.S. only because it isn't necessarily U.S. only. And the real problem is not Audible. It's the way the book publishing industry, which is a throwback to like the 1850s. <laughs> the, way, the way the book publishing industry works, it, it it's hyper aware of national boundaries. So... You, I'll give you an example. Harry Potter was published in Britain by, I think, Penguin, published in the U.S. by Scholastic. Oh. Harry, I mean, uh, J.K. Rowling, the author, goes to each country and negotiates a different deal in each country. No publisher is international. I mean, Penguin is. It's owned by Pearson, which is international. But each deal is is national. So when Audible makes a deal for the recorded rights, it goes to the national publisher, the one in Australia, is different from the one in the U.S. Wow. They may not even have an audio book. When you got the audio book of Harry Potter in England, Stephen Fry was reading it. When you got it in the U.S., Jim Dale was reading it. They're different mm-hmm. versions. They recorded two different versions, and you can't get one in the other country. So it's, ju- it's not Audible's fault. It's the way the crazy publishing industry works. It's likely that they didn't have rights for an audio recording in Australia. So I do ap- I'm, a- I'm not saying this to be angry. I apologize. Um, and I should, I guess, from time to time, I do mention that, that whenever we're doing the Audible ads, these are these are for generally these offers are U.S. only. Uh, some, but but I don't say it because sometimes they work in other countries, and I certainly want people to take advantage of them if they do. So yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. We have that deal again. I'll talk about it in a bit. Oh, cool. And uh, my last little bit of errata is that I received a nice notice in the mail uh, a couple days ago. CryptoLink trademark has been granted. Congratulations. So I have the trademark for CryptoLink. Um, that's been underway for some time. I got the domain CryptoLink.com. Not that I expect really to use it. Uh, everything will be GRC.com. But, you know, for a product like this, which I expect to be significant, I wanted to grab the associated domain. Um, so 
So that I've had, but now I also have the trademark. You can, I should show uh, people my, uh, you get a nice suitable for framing thing, don't you? With the yeah. trademark on it. Yeah. I should frame that, the twit one. Actually, my, my, my law firm keeps it for All me because right. it's better for them to have it than, and I'd be like, okay, where did that go? I'm sure that's I around here. I can see somewhere. mine. It's, a, it's a, on the shelf right there. And you get a little, uh, I don't know, I guess you, you got one probably too. You get, well, I guess this was the incorporate, corporate seal. I love that too. I, I stamp yep. things in my corporate seal. Yep. <laughs> I'm such a kid. This, I never thought I'd have trademarks and it's got a corporate, this is silly. Good stuff. Yeah. And then I do have a, a fun uh, security now testimonial. This one, this the, the subject of this one was Spinrite equals marriage enhancement tool. So I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that, but he said he's a security now listener. He says, "Steve, I've been listening since day zero to Security Now as the worm turns," oh. which I remembered was the first episode we ever did. Was it? He said, I think that we, we talked about a major worm on the net. Oh, wow. Um, anyway, he says, I owned version five of Spinrite, and I thank you for the upgrade to version six. It's my normal process when I get new hard drives installed to run Spinrite at level three and only change levels when I detect problems. So I recently gave my wife a mega souped up system, blue LEDs, Blue neon, two plus gigahertz AMD, two gig of RAM, and a two fifty gig SATA Seagate drive. Yeah, baby. After the OS install, security lockdown, and transferring from backup all of her class documents, our multi gigabytes of family pictures, etc. I ran Spinrite at level three, and all was well. Well, that was some time ago. My wife wakes me up one night stating her Win2K system locked up. And when she tried to restart, the BIOS just sat on the SATA drive detection screen. Resetting the PNP NVRAM nearly got the OS to boot. But the F8 screen progress bar was chuckily progressing forward, then locked. And it had been several weeks since she last ran the RoboCopy backup to server bat file. So, while running at level 4, Spinrite began listing countless entries of Spinrite detected damaged sectors, dot, 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 and all the data has been recovered, dot, dot, dot. And after about 24 hours, Spinrite finished the 2.5 gig C partition with more than 50 R entries, meaning... It found problems and fully recovered all the data. I reran at level five on C root, which finished this time with no errors after two hours, which meant that, you know, Spinrite did fix them during its first pass and he was rerunning a second pass and found no problems because of the approximately 50 recoveries that Spinrite had done the first time. He said, my wife was then able to happily boot into her system Check the financial websites that were needed, and all of her files on the D partition were once again accessible. Thank you again, Steve. Your expertly developed program allowed for a Merry Christmas night indeed. Aww. And this is signed Christopher A.H. He's a guy after our own heart. He's running, uh, he's running Windows 2000. <laughs> yep. 2K on a super hopped, spe- speeded up, all blue glowing neon LED machine. Funny? Now, yeah. I, I wonder how safe that is to run Windows 2000. They aren't patching it anymore, are they? Or are they? Uh, 
I, 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 frankly, I don't think I have a Win 2K box around yeah, it. I think if you lock it down, I guess you're probably, you know, when I set up my mom with Windows, she's on a Mac now, but when I set her up with Windows, that's exactly what I did. I set her up with Windows 2000. And he talked about security lockdown. Yeah. So yeah, you probably moved to Firefox and you don't use IE and you right. may, maybe use Eudora instead of Outlook. You know, it's do, not that do though. I, I worry about the fact that there may be holes that aren't getting patched. Yep. You know, and then and then it then it doesn't require any effort on your part. It's you know like down a dup or config or just get you. Yep. Um. All right. Are you ready to get your thinking caps on for a recap? <laughs> We're going to do that in just a second. I do want to mention our friends at Astaro, the great folks at Astaro. I love Astaro. They're the guys who uh, do the. Um, inc- we yes, they're here. Yes, people are going. What Astaro? Yes, we haven't heard from them in a while. Uh, we've we've worked out a deal where they come on once a month to remind everybody to use the Astaro Security Gateway. Uh, I I I still think it's a great product and we love it and we're really glad that they're still part of the uh, family. They've been part of security now since day one. You may not hear them as much on the show. And to be honest, you know what I told them? I said anybody who listens to security now knows about Astaro. It's probably shh, don't tell anybody, but it's probably okay to be on you know every few weeks. Yeah, just to remind people. Uh, if you're new to the show and you've not heard about Astaro, uh, let me tell you, the Astaro Security Gateway is it. It's all that. It is, uh, it is a, it's about the size of a router. Actually, they have a variety of different ones, but it runs uh, the best of breed in open source and commercial software. It's, it's Linux-based, but they've got amazing stuff on there uh, that just gives you fantastic protection. For instance, uh, you know, I think it's got three antivirus programs running everything that comes in your office goes through this so it gets there's two for the web and one for email it's got of course the best you know state-of-the-art firewall uh, intrusion protection system it gives you some nice uh, additional convenience features too which i guess are really security features things like automatic encryption and decryption of email using open pgp or smime that happens automatically not at the email client but on the gateway uh, so your users don't know it, but everything they're doing is secure. Uh, it's signing is automatic if you want. V- the boss is going to love this one, SSL VPN. So he doesn't have to, easy for the boss. We always like that. But you do have complete control of your VPN, IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP with tunneling, uh, with SSL VPN. All of that is available to you. Look, you get the idea as I start to list these. This thing, this box is a little modern miracle. And with the Starro up-to-date, it's always, always up-to-date, always patched. Um, you can, you can uh, as you grow, it will grow with you. You can, uh, they, they have a way, something they call it active-active clustering. So you can get as many as 10 gateways without additional load balancing. So as your enterprise grows, you don't have to say, oh, what, what are we going to do? If you're on uh, the Cisco uh, PICS, and you're, and you're being end of life, they have a special deal for you. You want to inquire about it? Here's what you do. Go to astaro.com slash security now, or better yet, call them. Just call them and say, I want a demo, free demo in your office. 877-4, this is toll free, 877-427-8276. the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. And they are really cool about this for uh, non-commercial use, free to download and try. Uh, including a Starro up-to-date, all the updates, everything. The stuff they used to charge money, absolutely free now for a non-commercial use. Uh, you go to astaro.com slash security now. Really good people. I'm really glad we can keep them on the show and uh, and continue to remind you 
If you have a business, if you have an enterprise, you need a Staro. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. It's nice to have them. I, I want to keep them on the show. I want to just keep in touch with them. I think they're a great group. Uh, and, you know, they just decided they couldn't spend as much money on advertising as they had been. Well, it was, I, I enjoyed meeting them also at the RSA conference last year. I mean, they had, a, they had a booth there, and they were just, I mean, like your typical hardcore Unix, yeah. you know, yeah. I, I don't want to say geek in any sort of a pejorative way, but I mean, you know, like long hair. Um, yeah, and I, felt, I said to them, I, you know, you don't, spend as, you don't need to spend all this money. Once a month, come on, we'll remind people about Astaro. Uh, and anybody who's listens to this show knows about Astaro by now. Right. Uh, so it's really just kind of a refresh, a recap, if you will, a reminder that Astaro is the best. So let's talk about encryption. We've done many. How many shows have we done on uh, encryption technologies? Seems like uh, a dozen. I would say over the last four or three and a half years, we've we've touched on the topic often because it's it's, I think, certainly it's interesting and we rely on it constantly. What we're going to do in in several episodes from now is go over in detail. I mean, literally, the 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 packet by packet operation of of the SSL protocol. SSL is we've talked about it many times. Secure socket layer. We've we've talked about asymmetric encryption symmetric encryption we've talked about recently of course digital certificates and certificate signing and the the recent exploits against the md5 hash and how that has affected um, the the integrity of of ssl but there is no protocol no security protocol that any of us use more than ssl what we've never done is look at exactly how it works how does it provide these features that you know we all to, to varying degrees take for granted so i want to do that but before we do that we need to lay a little bit more foundation and before that i thought you know i see people who are who who uh, send notes saying wow you know i had to read that the transcripts of that episode three times and like <laughs> slowly and 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 repeat it to myself in order to understand what you guys were talking about so i thought and and because as you mentioned leo we've had so many discussions about about various aspects of security and and frankly very little repetition among them i thought this would be a nice time before we go any further to just sort of have a little bit of a timeout and say okay hold on let's let's step back from the minutia and from the detail and and do sort of a review of the the major concepts and and components of this that we've talked about over the last three and a half years. That's I, I'm ready for it. That's fantastic because you know I I've pieced it together listening to the show and you know I've been here for every episode, but <laughs> uh, but I but I but it's nice to kind of get an overview and see if it all the pieces fit together and then fill in the holes too. One of the analogies that we've used often, I think that I always get a kick out of, is is the you know the Mayberry RFD uh, Opie and Aunt B uh, you know characters because they remind us of uh, by looking at at what security is implicit in in physical real world contact, you're sort of able to to better understand. What is missing from from that implicit security when you get on the internet? And of course, you know, in a physical 
model, you know, where, for example, Aunt B calls the pharmacist to say, hey, you know, I've asked Opie, I guess that was her, her grandson, yeah. to to come over and pick up my prescription. So, you know, the, the pharmacist knows Aunt B, knows Opie, recognizes them on site, recognizes Aunt B's voice on the phone. And and so there's authentication happening. You know, she dialed the pharmacist. So she's got a good reason to believe that that's that's the pharmacist on the other end, even though there may be multiple pharmacists and she may not know them, um, you know, which one. But, you know, she initiated that connection. So um, uh, so she has some reason to believe that that's who she's talking to, you know. Opie has been around town for a while. He knows where the pharmacy is. He knows, you know, the, the pharmacist knows to expect him and so on. So, so in, in, in the real world, we have a number of things that, that we sort of tend to take for granted, all of which are missing in this, you know, increasingly sort of hostile security, hostile and, and predatory environment of the internet. Um, one of the things that we need to do is to be clear about the so-called threat model. Hmm. That is, you know, what is it that we can do? What is it that we intend to achieve? And what things are we not trying to do? And 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 so if, in other words, constrain the uh, not try to do too much or do stuff that's not needed. Well, yes. For example, in in our discussions of of security we've we've made the implicit assumption for example that it's the communication between two endpoints that we are trying to protect but that the endpoints themselves have not been compromised mm. and the and the point is if the endpoints are compromised the game is up right i mean if if something for example a keystroke logger a keystroke logger will log your keystrokes as you're typing them it doesn't matter if once they get on the wire, they're authenticated and <laughs> and and secured. Right. And boy, you know, nobody can get them, you know, during transit. Well, they got them beforehand. The other reason for that is it's extremely difficult to protect yourself against physical access. I mean, well, yes. And, and the other example at the other end of this connection is, you know, we keep hearing how how remote facilities whether they're for example network solutions we heard about the other day um and and other sorts of attacks at at the at the remote end like loss of of confidential security information we hear about how that information is getting away well once again it may have been absolutely secure and authenticated and we we had a fantastic experience you know hooking up to our banking site and and nobody was able to get the data as it was going from us to there. But unfortunately, it then sits there on some database on the banking servers where it's vulnerable. So, again, are we, we in, in talking about what it is we're trying to protect? We need to we need to to delineate what it is, you know, what what the threat model is and exactly what it is we're hoping to achieve. Um, we also make some assumptions we make for, for example, one assumption is that there is non infinite computational power. That is that there, you, there are not literally infinite resources 
that can be applied because all of the crypto that we've been talking about, it, um, for example, every single one of these things we've been talking about is subject to brute force attack. No matter how long the key is, even though, you know, 128 bits or 256 bits, that's a, that's a lot of combinations. That's two raised to that power combinations. Well, it's not infinite. It's still, you know, a, a number that we're able to write down. And if we had time, we could test them all. One of them is the right combination of bits. One of them decrypts this, you know. It's, it makes you even feel a little uncomfortable to say that. It's like, wait a minute. You mean there's an answer to the, there's a way to crack this, this, this encryption? Yes. It's you try all the combinations. But the point is we've made it so difficult. We've made there, there are so many combinations that it, you just can't, it's not feasible in a reasonable amount of time to try them all. But it's always worth remembering that, that it's not perfect security it's just really 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 good <laughs> well there's no Se- such thing as perfect security um no there is is there? um well we th- there there's the potential for it. we've we we talked a long time ago about a one-time pad right and if you had a if you had a one-time pad that was absolutely random and the other person at the other end had a matching copy. That is, you're not basing it on a key that's that's generating pseudo-random sequence. It's truly random, and the other person has it. Then, oh, and you absolutely never reuse it. I mean, there are there again, there are restrictions, but there's absolutely no way to crack that. Period. Absolutely. No way. Now, the only thing you could do would be to try to, you know, guess every character of the message. But then you could make up any message you wanted. You have no way of knowing which is the right message, except by the message length. And you could also pad the length in order to throw somebody off. But but in in fact, there were times during the um, during various world wars where this approach was used. Um, You know, ping pong balls were were chosen um, completely at random. Um, unfortunately, there was one instance where they, um, they literally were using ping pong balls and there was a bias in the ping pong ball generator. <laughs> so that caused a problem. But the biggest mistake made is, is ever using the one time pad a second time. It's called a one time pad for a reason, not just a not right. often pad. Right. And but- so. Go ahead. If somebody, you could still be compromised by somebody with physical access, right? I mean. Oh, that's a very good point. Because, again, we were saying that our endpoints are secure. Right. You can yes. have perfect security po- between points, of course. Uh, yes, exactly. And, okay. and, and exactly. Now, an- another, a couple other instances where we're assuming non-infinite computational power is with factorization. One of the, there are, there are, there are two things that a lot of our crypto depends upon. And um, that is our, our public key crypto. One is that it is very easy to multiply two prime, two big prime numbers together. But it is, as, as, as far as we know, there is no similarly easy way to unmultiply 
the result. That is to factor that big um, that that big multiplicand into um, uh, its its two components, constituent parts. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so so much of cryptography, surprisingly enough, depends upon that one simple fact that you, it's easy to multiply two big numbers. It's extremely difficult and time consuming to figure out which two big prime numbers the result was made from. And, you know, tons of time and brain power has gone into this and no one's found. I mean, then there's lots of factoring theory and lots of factoring like improvements. But those are like so far away from giving anyone the leverage that, that weakens our crypto that it's holding up very well. The other interesting sort of like one way function is that it is it's also very easy to to take an exponent. Uh, exponentiation to raise something to some power it's extremely difficult to go the other way and that is to take the logarithm to get to get at the discrete logarithm of of something raised to some power which is and then you take the you, you do a modulus function and take the remainder of of this modulus function that that's a um, that's something that again we haven't been able to reverse, and that's another sort of fundamental hard problem that that we're assuming no one is going to come up with an an easy solution to. If they did, that would be bad. Yes, <laughs> because yes. we'd be in serious trouble. Well, I mean, every crypto- once in a while, you know, when people talk about things like quantum computing, they say, and it's so good it could factor, you know, these big prime numbers, and security would be changed forever. But right. so and, far, it's not. Nobody's been able to make one. No, no. And then another thing about the the design of a secure crypto system is you want there not to be any single point of failure. That is, you'd like to have in a communication network of people communicating. You would, if a if one dialogue between two parties were to somehow be cracked, you would you would like all of the other dialogues between other groups of parties, even involving this, the same endpoints to be, to retain their security in the face of that crack. That is, for example, if, if the security only involved everybody with using a single um, pre-shared key, a single static key, then that would be an example of a system not well designed because the disclosure of that single key would not only allow you to crack the dialogue that was your target, but all the other dialogues that were unfortunately sharing the same key. So one of the other things that, that we've, we've seen um, and that we'll be talking about shortly in, in a couple of weeks is this notion of, of coming up with some key agreement somehow but never actually using that key for your for your live encryption you instead you always use derivative keys that have have various um limited um lengths of life so that you're not actually using the the sort of like the root key that you originally came up with and so if we assume that the endpoints are secure. That is that that is they they've not been compromised because, as we said, 
you know, keystroke loggers get in before the encryption, database compromise happens after the, the, this encryption. We, we, we're, and so we're limiting ourselves to this notion of, okay, let's assume that we have control of each end, but we have no control at all of the link between, you know, i.e. the internet. So that means that our, our, our communication is subject to having bits dropped, um, bits added, um, bits changed, uh, and even bits replayed, things in our pa- packets replayed. And so we need to also guard against this notion of, of an attacker somehow like redoing something. For example, you know, say that a communication link with a server involved you know, transferring a chunk of money to PayPal. Well, we would like to prevent somebody recording that whole dialogue, even though they can't understand it, and replaying it to transfer the same amount of money again. So guarding against a replay attack, in addition to um, the idea of injecting new traffic, modifying traffic, or dropping traffic, is is another aspect of, of what any truly secure protocol would be able to do. So finally, let's step back a little bit and say, okay, what do we mean by security? Well, security in this context, in the context of, of this threat model where we're wanting to protect communications between two endpoints over the Internet in the face of, of injection, drop traffic, modified traffic, and replayed traffic, um, we want three things. We want confidentiality of our communication. That is, we want nobody, no matter what they do, um, no man in the middle, whether they're you know able to intercept the traffic and and see everything we do, change it in any way. We want we want it to be absolutely the case that it that we're gonna. <laughs> I heard I heard Fred Flintstone, so I there guess the was, servers back up. There's Fred in the background. Yep. <laughs> Somebody purchased a copy of Spinrite. Thank I you. I love I love Fred. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did I did leave him unmuted this time because I know you get a kick out of that. It later, makes me so. laugh every single time. I love it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> makes me smile every single. <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, I bet it does. So we um so what what we want is we want confidentiality. We've looked at ways. Well, okay, co- co- confidentiality. We also want to guard against the message that we're sending being modified. So we need to we, we need to verify the message's integrity. And lastly, we also want to authenticate the endpoints. We want to make sure that, that at least one, or maybe both, are who we who who we think um, we're talking to. We've talked about this in, with regard to to phishing attacks often, you know, and and the Kaminsky attack against DNS that has you talking to a wrong server to certificate problems. So we want no one to be able to to hear what we're doing. We want no one to be able to change what we say, and we want to absolutely be sure we're talking to the endpoint we think. And so if you think about it, all of that is implicit in real-world communications. In the Opie and Ant B, you know, Mayberry scenario, you, you in, in this case, confidentiality in that example isn't required. But, um, um, but the, the, the other things that we take for granted about a physical real-world communication um, um, are present 
And we and, and so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to extend that model across the Internet. With regard to confidentiality, we have talked in the past about encryption, the notion of using of symmetric encryption where we share some sort of a key and we use the same key at each end, thus the symmetry to encrypt and decrypt. We've talked about asymmetric encryption, also known as public key encryption, because in the general case, we're, we're normally keeping one key secret, the other key is private, although neither has to be the case, but that's normally the way it's used. And because asymmetric encryption is so, so computationally burdensome, we don't asymmetrically encrypt the, a, a, an entire long message. That would just take forever. Instead, what we do is we, we choose a random symmetric key and we use the asymmetric encryption just to encrypt it. That way that allows us to transport it to the other end where the public key or asymmetric encryption is used to decrypt that. That creates a, a sort of a transient shared secret, a, a shared secret that, that is just going to be used for some length of time. We're able to get it to the other end even in, in full view by using public key encryption, then it's used in order to symmetrically encrypt and decrypt our communication. And finally, key management is an aspect of, of confidentiality, whether we're using, as I just gave the example of using public key encryption to encrypt a shared secret, there's another approach which is known as key agreement, where it's possible for for the ends to publicly disclose what they're what they're sharing yet maintain maintain full confidentiality so that someone an attacker can see a dialogue going back and forth in the air essentially yet even so um, someone watching it can't intercept or, or, or can't end up with the knowledge of the key which is agreed upon. So, so those are sort of the aspects of confidentiality, um, in encryption, and key management. The, the, the next thing, the second of these three of confidentiality, message modification, prevention, and endpoint authentication is this, this message integrity. We've talked about um, using hashes. Of course, we talked about MD5 a lot. The notion of creating a signature um, and there are, you know, the SHA-1 hash. There are more modern hashes that use larger um, uh, hashing results that are that are increasingly secure. Um, so, um, um, yeah. In fact, that's other, what that's what PGP does, right? When I'm uh, using it to sign as opposed to encrypt, it's hashing it. Yes, exactly. And so, so the idea is that we've talked about. Um, a hash being a digest of a, a much larger communication where it reduces it to a, a essentially a fingerprint, something such that any modification to the original document would end up changing the fingerprint completely. And it is not computationally feasible. Here we go again. We're assuming non-infinite computational power. It's not computationally feasible to to make a change that results in a deliberate result. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this breach in MD5 where within limits, 
these these cryptographers figured out how md5's algorithm could is not strong it's not as strong as we hoped or wanted where they were able to deliberately get a a an md5 digest to come out exactly the same as another documents which allowed them to take the signature from a certificate authority and apply it to their bogus certificate so so what we're going to talk about in a couple weeks is a type of digest we've never discussed before which is a keyed digest that is where you mix the notion of a cryptographic key with a digest and that's important for authentication of the person who did the signing um i've always sort of chuckled a little bit to myself when i've seen download sites that sh- that give you the md5 and even the SHA1 hash right. for the file you're right. downloading. Right. That's always seemed dumb to me because if somebody was able to put a fraudulent file there, well, then they're also they just, able they just to change the hash. Exactly. <laughs> I never they're thought a, of it that way. <laughs> exactly. They're able to say, you know, here's the MD5 and the SHA1 for the file. And so you think, oh, good. I'm going to download that and I'm going to check the MD5. Well, if the file's bogus, then so is the hash, or it could be because they've obviously compromised the server. And I guess the idea is that you put the the hash on a website, but you're getting the file from an FTP server, so you'd have to compromise two different locales. At least yeah. when it's done in open source, I think that's the idea. But you make a very good point. <laughs> trust, you know, it, trust it, no. That's the trust no one model. It, well, it's like the email that says this email has been right. has been scanned and verified by a antivirus. Right. It's like, oh, well, if I were going to write a virus, that's the first thing I'd have added to the end of the email. Make sure that says that everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're going to talk about a way of, of keying these digests in order to to create essentially an authenticated signature, which we don't have at this point, because, uh, again, imagine that a communication were going across the wire and it was signed by, even by a really good hash, like by SHA-256, which, as far as we know, has, you know, no weaknesses. Well, some bad guy, since, since the algorithm is public, a bad guy could replace the message with his own and sign it with SHA-256. And so it would get to the other end, and if the digest were checked, it would match. I mean, it it would be properly signed. So so this notion of coming up with a a, a keyed digest is one aspect. It's like it's the final thing we haven't talked about that we need to discuss before we get into how, in detail, SSL gives us all the things that we've just been talking about. Right, right. And the last thing is endpoint authentication. That is, we have confidentiality and and um, uh, a protection against message being modified, and then endpoint authentication, and that we've we've covered extensively in the last few weeks when we've been talking about certificates and the way we have it a chain of trust which is anchored to a root certificate authority, so we're able to follow the chain all the way to the to the certificate, and given that 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 every link in the chain has been um, is is trusted and the and the certificate root is trusted 
then we can trust the certificate that results to verify the, authentic, uh, the, uh, the identity of the endpoint. I've always thought the chain of trust is kind of an elegant concept. I really like it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you've covered a lot of ground here. Well, so those are, yes, those are, I wanted to sort of review, those are all the elements of, you know, crypto systems that we've talked about and, and the, the, the things that we want to achieve, we'll, we will in two weeks after next week's Q&A, we're going to talk about keyed digests, essentially, how we introduce the notion of, you know, who signed this rather mm. than just using a, a common fixed algorithm that always results in the same signature. That's the last piece we need before we talk about how SSL actually delivers all of this for us every time we go to a secure website. Very cool. You know, we uh, in this in the security news, there was one thing I I forgot uh, to mention. Did you see that the my.barackobama.com site had been hacked? It's a public site uh, that allows people to create groups so that they it was used during the campaign for fundraising and for organizing. And uh, as with any forum, if you give people access to it, they can put links to Trojans and stuff like that. So I guess it's not really that it was hacked, but just that there were people were putting Trojans up on there for oh, people to download. Good. Isn't that terrible? But it is, it's a reminder of what we said at the very beginning. Do not accept files from strangers. And right. uh, when you see an executable, uh, whether it's on a forum or on a BitTorrent site or anywhere, just stay away from those. Those things are dangerous. All yeah. right. I feel ready. I feel my brain has grown. I under- Everything you said, I understood. Isn't that great? Yeah, I understood we, it. This is stuff we've all talked about before. I just wanted to kind of gather it all together in one place uh, so that we have a, a, a common glossary uh, and uh, to move forward. And in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to tackle finally how all this fits together into a complete crypto system and talk a little bit about the history of SSL. It turns out that version one of SSL was not very good. Oh, really? They used... Our old bit. friend, RC4. Right. This is from Netscape. Netscape, of yeah. Of course, RC4 was the pseudo, is the pseudo-random sequence of bytes, which just uses XOR, and they only protected it with a CRC, with oh, a standard wow. checksum, which meant it made it very prone to being manipulated. Fortunately, that never got out in the world. Um, it was replaced by version 2 very quickly. They also offered 40-bit and 50-bit, 56-bit, I think, encryption. Um, yeah, well, th- there were um, f- 56 was, was, of course, DES encryption that was uh, there. And and that's a good point. You know, one of the things that I I that they took into account, which which the original Wi-Fi spec that the also uses 40 bit encryption took into account was U.S. export restrictions. Right. Which, until 2000, the year 2000, were I mean, really a problem. It, it was nutso that, you know, I mean, here, all this is in the public domain, all of it's in magazines and, and, and on the net and, and fully available. Oh, yeah. It, oh, our, yeah. The U.S. government is saying, oh, no, this is, mu-, they were calling it munitions. munitions. Yeah. That didn't last. I remember there was the hacker who put the, um, the uh, co- a coat on his T-shirt <laughs> and said and got on an airplane. They just couldn't. They couldn't protect it. The, the, the secret yeah. had had gotten out. It was just nuts. and they just couldn't protect it. 
So, um, uh, fortunately, we all use 128-bit secure uh, SSL using our... It's RSA now, right? Is that what they use instead of RC4? Well, that's what we're going to talk about okay. in a couple of weeks. We're going to go over all of that because the, the way this has evolved is interesting. Yeah. And uh, we now have all the tools in our toolkit for understanding this. Oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to do a preview. <laughs> By the way, uh, next week we do answers uh, to your questions. So I, I want you to go to a Steve site, grc.com slash feedback. If you've got, if you hear, heard something today or you've heard something on another show that, that raised an issue, a question, a lot of times you get great ideas too. So don't hesitate to go there and say, Hey, what about this? I think this might work or I've got a better way of doing it or yeah. whatever you have to say. You're full of it, Leo. That's okay too. grc.com slash security now that's the place to go by the way we're while you're at grc man we've got some great stuff steve's got some great stuff there for you uh, not only all the podcasts going way back to uh, episode one as the worm turns uh both in 64k uh full quality as well as 16k for the bandwidth impaired he's got transcripts you don't have transcripts for every show do you Every show I had Elaine go back and and we caught up wow. from the very beginning. I said, look, let's let's lay down a foundation here. So, yes, every wow. single show. I would really like to start doing that for other shows. We've got to put transcripts out because it just makes it easier to find stuff. And I will say the wiki stuff that's been done is just spectacular, Leo. Thank you to our wiki wiki area. Wikiarians. Yeah. Uh, it's wiki.twit.tv. Uh, it's an official wiki. We put it up on our servers. Uh, and uh, it's using MediaWiki. So if you've ever edited Wikipedia, please go in there, create an account. We are all invited. Uh, and, and really, the community has stepped up, and we've got great show notes there now. Uh, as as you're talking, Steve, they're typing. They're going to put them in. And I <laughs> That's be a little in. freaky. Oh, man, they do such a good job. So th- thank you to our uh, our Wiki uh, editors. They're just And anybody can be one. That's the beauty of a Wiki. So, uh, yeah, twit.tv, uh, wiki.twit.tv is the place to go for Show notes. Steve's got his complete show notes as well on his site. Um, and, of course, once you get to grc.com, you're going to find all sorts of great software. Shields up to test your router. Uh, decombobulator. Wismo. Somebody asked in the chat room, I need more instructions on Wismo. Is the readme uh, not enough for some people? Uh, I think it's the, all well, there. It's all there. I mean, and the page. Go to the GRC's Wismo page. Because um, I've got lot like a paragraph for every single verb. So there's much more on the website than there is in the app ah, itself. Okay. So read the website. That's the yep. thing. Wisdom and I will mention cool. I'm uh, uh, where, where, where my time at the moment is. Uh, actually, is a couple things. I have successfully built three of the little PDP-8 kits. That that was uh, over the weekend. I did that. I, now, do you have me- to solder those or you just snap them in? Or? Oh, it's major solder. Oh, I mean, it's, you built three it, of them? I built three of them, and uh, it's amazingly fatiguing because I have got this little, this little uh, wacky magnifying right. head gear that I wear that allows me to see really close. But you know, I mean, like I'm holding my breath as I'm touching the soldering iron and the solder to every single one of the little legs. Oh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll have one with me next week and, and hold it up for our That's our cool. live video people to see. That's so cool! You built three of them. Yeah. Why'd you build and, three uh, of them? And they came right up, uh, uh, responded to the console. You're um, oh, that must be a good feeling when you build something like that and it works. Yeah, yeah. Although it, it's you know, I mean, it's it's advanced kit construction, but all the all the pieces are there and all the work has been done by by Bob Armstrong who who designed it. And uh, probably about a month from now, 
the, the, the front panel kits will come, which is the front panel with all the switches and lights and things. And so those get, I'll wow. build those and then, then mate the two boards together and, uh, and have some blinky lights. You are, we got to do a show on, you know, just, I don't know what I, you program it or something. I don't know. That well, might yeah, be a separate, to, uh, a separate, a sidecar show. We'll do a side. I'll, I'll do it. I'll have to write a program specifically <laughs> to make the lights all blink in a, in a good way. And, uh, and then where I've been in coding mode, I'm working on um, bringing the uh, what used to be called DNSRU. It's a utility from 2002. I found it was dated 2002 when I opened up the source code. So it's seven years ago. And that was, it stood for DNS Research Utility. I was, I was experimenting with a whole bunch of things about DNS, but it's, it's, it's always been like the secret favorite of the denizens of the GRC news groups, um, it expired, and so you had to hold down a shift key when you started it in order to get around the the expiry notice. Um, but it's, as far as I know, it is the most comprehensive benchmark ever created for DNS. And um, now that Open DNS has come to the fore, and there are a bunch of other public DNS servers, um, it'll be very easy for people to run this. And compare their D, their ISPs DNS servers or whatever DNS servers they're using to a bunch of others, and so it gives you statistics and performance and characterizations and just a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm in the process of finishing it, which is like it's the final piece of this whole DNS region that I've been assembling for GRC, which started with the whole you know check your DNS servers for their spoofability. Yeah, so it's all coming together. Very cool. So this is a lot of stuff uh, Steve's working on. G- again, grc.com, and it'll all be unveiled there. And let's not forget, there is something called spin right there that you just should have a copy that of. That makes it all possible. It makes just, everything else that I do possible. You just ought to have a copy of that. That's at grc.com. Steve, thanks so much. Great fun. I felt like I learned something, as always. And uh, we'll be back next week to answer questions. And I'll see you then, Steve. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Security now.